Welcome to ESG Out Loud. I'm Emil Halle. And I'm Paul Curcio. On this episode, we are going deep into the topic of animal agriculture and investing. Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, InvestNet. Today, we're talking with Elizabeth Alfano, whose firm VegTech Invest has an ETF focused on alternative proteins and plant-based materials. We go over the climate implications of factory farming and animal agriculture widely, and we touch on how it affects food security, water, and human health. So, Paul, I'm curious, what would you like to know about the role of animal industry in investing and climate change? Well, every time I have breakfast uh, that involves eggs and I know the price uh, is going sky high, uh, I'd like to hear more about how ESG is hedging uh, for the potential for food shortages uh, caused by pandemics, etc. And that's something we are definitely going to get to in the interview. Full disclosure, I am vegan and I have been for a long time. Before we get to the interview, let's go over a few developments that have happened since the last episode. Now, it's no surprise to many of you listening that there has been a growing push by some Republican state leaders in an anti-ESG effort that some have folded in with a wider war on wokeism, or at least what they have determined to be wokeism. Now, I had thought that maybe after the midterms, we would be seeing a little bit less of this, but that has definitely not been the case. Part of this is because the Department of Labor finalized its ESG rule for retirement plans in November, and that rule took effect just last week. Republicans have responded to that with a federal lawsuit with 25 states uh, as plaintiffs seeking to invalidate the rule. I spoke with some lawyers who know ERISA, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, uh, inside and out, and they feel that it would be pretty difficult to defeat the rule in court, largely because the Biden, Biden administration was careful in how it drafted the rule and didn't make it prescriptive. The rule doesn't require planned fiduciaries to make considerations around ESG, but it does allow them to. But we've also seen some developments in Congress with companion bills in the House and Senate that are seeking to overturn the rule. And even if there is enough support in both sides of Congress, President Biden would all but certainly veto that legislation. So it's unlikely that there's much chance of success anytime soon for those. However, it hints at strategies that Republicans could deploy with more success if Democrats lose the White House in 2024. And we've also seen congressional Democrats start a sustainable investing caucus that happened uh, just last week. And more recently, Republicans have started an anti-ESG working group. So it seems like things might just be getting started in the war on ESG. The anti-ESG movement is growing in its vocalization. Uh, it's pounding the table, uh, and that definitely is creating a bit of a schism uh, among investors and uh, advisors, certainly. Um, there are advisors who I hear from who are certainly not interested in ESG and don't want it shoved down their throats, and there are others, uh, others who embrace it uh, you know, willingly. Uh, I, I, Again, you know, is it is it a, a question of leaving it up to states or individual corporations uh, if they want to incorporate the ESG platform, or uh, is it something that should be legislated? I, I think that's something that we're in the early innings for. Well, so I'm really curious about how many folks were leaning toward support for ESG before oil and gas had its strong advantage in the market in terms of returns. 
I imagine that that has probably converted some folks because there was um, significant evidence that ESG strategies had outperformed the broader market, but that doesn't take last year or this year into account. And that's changed things. But I think an important question to ask is, how important, how significant is a year's worth of performance if you're a long-term investor? And ESG is all about the long-term. So I, I will be curious to see what happens uh, when that advantage for oil and gas uh, goes away, if that is anytime soon. Yeah, and that's a good point. And, and let's not forget that ESG is, uh, is three-pronged, right? Environments, environmental, social, and governance. And let's not forget that the governance part is self-regulatory. It is about how the, co the corporations govern themselves, who's on their board, what policies they set. So, you know, it's not exactly all about wokeism. So I think there's a lot here to be mined. And again, like I said, I think it's early innings. Oh, and for the sake of uh, full disclosure, uh, I'll eat anything, you know, any anything but olives. If it has olives, forget it. I'm not going to eat it. For me, that that's uh, that's okra and, and natto um, and anything that comes from an animal, too. And with that, uh, let's get to our interview with Elizabeth Alfano. I'd like to welcome our guest to the podcast, Elizabeth Alfano, who is the CEO and founder of VegTech Invest. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. So happy to be here. So I want to talk um, pretty generally about the role of animal agriculture in investing. Safe to say that if you are the average 401k participant, for example, um, and you might have the bulk of your retirement savings in a target date fund, for the sake of this argument, it might be a far off vintage. It's really heavy in stocks. Uh, you know, a lot of S&P 500 holdings, there's going to be um, a significant number of holdings that have some exposure to animal agriculture in there. What might mm -hmm. people not know about how much they might be investing in animal agriculture and why that might be an issue? Well, certainly usually anything that's around ag tech and, as you say, kind of a standard portfolio is going to have exposure to this sector. And um, I would encourage people to really think about this just like you think about switching out oil and gas, let's say, to alternative energy or um, the old vehicle model to electric vehicles. Start thinking about alternative ways of feeding the planet rather than our current system. So, you know, hey, let's face it, we all grew up eating meat. It's what we know. It's what people love. It's, it's for most people, it's tasty, but it is an inefficient system that is truly frying the planet. So let me give you some statistics here. 42% um, of all clean water is used by animal agriculture. 41% of the world's tropical deforestation happens to graze animals and to grow crops for them. 32%, 32% of the world's methane emissions comes from animal agriculture. So it's simply put, you will not impact climate change in the time that we need to do it sufficiently enough if you do not address animal agriculture. Okay, so, you know, like I said, we all grew up with eating meat and that's what we know and love. So it's not a shame game. It's more, how can we just be more efficient? According to ourworldindata.org, 
77% of our agricultural land grows to raise crops and graze animals, but it only gives us 18% of our protein. So now if you think about a world that's going from 8 billion people to 10 billion people, but you're not getting more land and you're not getting more water, that math just doesn't work anymore. So as we look to better natural resources management so that we can feed a growing population, our old system just doesn't play into that. And luckily there are many opportunities to invest in disrupting the old system and to invest in alternative proteins, plant-based innovation, new ways of doing food. Um, but the old way served us before and really doesn't serve us well now. Okay. Yeah. And let's, let's go back to, to some of the misunderstandings that folks might have about how much uh, their diet might be linked to climate change. Now, I, I imagine that most people are at least somewhat concerned about climate change and want to do what they can, provided it's not too difficult. It's not asking too much of them. Um, and most folks are not vegetarian, nor especially vegan. And to get them to understand the link between diet and climate change seems important. And so what I'm thinking about right now is there is this, um, there is a quiz that uh, the New York Times had on the site back in December. And it asked people about how big of an impact roughly a dozen, a dozen different kinds of changes uh, they could make in their lives would have on their overall carbon footprint. And changing to a vegan diet was among the most significant things they do that would have the biggest impact. So among that, that list of a dozen things, and that included like getting rid of your car or um, switching to renewable energy, going to a vegan diet was the answer that the fewest number of people got right. Only 6% of people got the right answer. So it, it seems like there's a pretty big kind of misunderstanding about the link there. And we know that agriculture, as you said, particularly animal, animal agriculture is leading source of greenhouse gas emission, is a leading source, sorry, of greenhouse gas emissions. So how do you get people interested in that from an investing perspective, particularly if they're not so interested in switching their lifestyle or switching to um, eating more plant-based foods, for example? Oh my gosh, herein lies the joy. <laughs> because if switching your diet is tricky for you, then investing to have better alternatives that are tastier, that are cheaper, you know, this is what investment does is it allows a, a system to scale and so the price comes down. Uh, investing to make your eating better, better for the planet, better for your kids, their ki your kids' future, and your own health, by the way. We haven't even, we've talked about planetary health, so all the statistics about greenhouse gas emissions and methane in particular, but you know, there's also skyrocketing healthcare costs for the lifestyle diseases that are caused by diet, primarily a, a diet heavy in saturated fat and, and a diet that has no fiber. So meat has no fiber. So um, meat is linked to you know, heart disease, colorectal cancer, diabetes, hypertension, etc. So um, there's lots of reasons to invest. And so even if you're not switching your diet today, and, and I'll come back to that because that's kind of a, a big topic, you can invest to switch your diet in the future. <laughs> and um, we did a study for, you know, I run the, the EatV ETF. It's the world's only plant-based innovation ETF. We did a research study with your stake and they found that investing in the fund of 
they just picked a, a number, 10,000 over five years, is 4.4 times more impactful than changing your diet. Not saying that you don't change your diet. Ultimately, you do that in time. But um, that's that's one way to, to have an impact. But what's really exciting is if you're an investor, then you're interested in megatrends, what we call a secular trend. A secular trend meaning everyone will adopt it, not just people in Brooklyn and San Francisco, but it will be China and Africa. In fact, they're doing this already. We'll talk about the politics behind shifting the global food supply system and, and who's really involved. China would be one of them. But, you know, Israel, the Netherlands, Germany, young people, old people, uh, religious people, non-religious people, everyone will adopt these technologies. Why? Because when you make something that solves a problem at scale, and of course, this is what business does really well, solves a problem at scale, then you have mass adoption, and that's an investable megatrend. So, you know, just think if you invested in semiconductors before semiconductors ran the world and they were in everything, you know, if you, you'd be pretty happy if you got in investing in, in um, semiconductors early on. And so this has that same opportunity given the scale of the global food supply system. So it's very attractive from an investment standpoint. Um, you know, it's, it's not going to be something that's tomorrow. It's something that you look at with a vision of five years, seven years, three years, 10 years. Um, but it's very attractive from investing as well as the sort of hope of it all because of the impact it can have on the planet. So I want to talk a little bit more about that. I'm, I'm someone who has had a plant-based diet, um, animal-free diet for a really long time. And 20 years ago, one of the things that interested me in that was the idea that if everybody switched to an animal-free diet, there would be no, there would be no hunger globally. Um, that's obviously that that was incorrect at the time, um, and there were issues around food distribution. It wasn't just that you know if you switch to a diet of whole grains, fruits and vegetables, um, legumes, etc., that 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 would um, make more food available. Uh, to, to the whole world. So I'm wondering what's different now and how some of these uh, protein technologies um, or, or whatever you might call them, what that can do to improve uh, the food supply and, and, and make it so that we, we don't have hunger issues if, if that is indeed something that's possible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that you bridge this gap for everyone because, of course, we first talk about the planet because the damage there is so glaring. And we sort of assume like, oh, everyone's kind of heard from their doctor to cut back on red meat. And so we kind of know, at least tangentially, people know about the personal health issues. But it's very hard for people to understand how does our food system result in not having enough food? That seems counterintuitive. But indeed, like we were talking about before, because of how we use our natural resources, so animal agriculture using a disproportionate amount of land and water, it actually ends up being a system that creates food for the wealthier nations and the poorer nations then don't have access to food. So there are a, a couple things that we can do to address this. Of course, if you have a bad dictator, you're never going to have access to food. So it's not only just how prolific we can make the food system. Um, there are internal distribution challenges, but this addresses those as well. So um, if you think that you cut down trees to grow crops 
that have fiber and they have protein, do you give this food to people? No, you give it to animals and then those animals need more land water and time. You have to cut down more trees. You have to grow more grains and, and you know really good food that has fiber and protein and then you still give it to animals. So this inefficient system is giving the food to animals. We're actually feeding animals. <laughs> That's what the system does. Uh, and then those animals are awful calorie converters. So the best math you're ever going to get is a chicken needs seven to nine calories of feed or grain to give one calorie back of meat. Now a cow is going to use anywhere from 25 to 45 calories of grain to give us one calorie of beef. So that's really bad math, which is why you need so many animals. Uh, Emil, if I were to ask you, take a wild guess, how many animals do you think are in factories now? Globally or in the U.S.? Globally. So I, I imagine it is in uh, many uh, billions. Okay. Uh, let's start first with um, how many people are on planet Earth? Eight billion. Is that right? There you go. Eight billion on planet Earth, 80 billion in factories. So why do we have 10 times more animals in factories than we have people on Earth? Well, because they're such poor calorie converters. So you need so many more of them to feed people because it, it, it just takes that many. And, and also we eat an inordinate amount. The average American eats 274 pounds of meat a year, 274 pounds of food that doesn't have any fiber. So now we're back to the health issues. Um, okay, but when you get to making alternative proteins, so that can be three things. That can be plant-based foods. So you take, let's say, fava beans or pea protein and you make them into burgers or sausages or chicken or what have you. There's a lot more out there than just burgers. That's one option. But then there's also fermenting foods. It's called precision fermentation or biomass fermentation, where you take microbes and you grow really clean protein. Um, these things get, that can help with digestion, building off of um, microbes or fungi, these kinds of foods. Or you have cultivated meat, meat that is grown in a controlled scenario, otherwise known as a lab, and you grow just the meat that you need. So you take the cells from the animal, and if you want filet mignon, you just grow filet mignon. You don't bother with hooves and blood and ears and eyes and cutting down trees and feeding and waiting and water, none of this. So you, you get rid of that very expensive middleman. So now you're talking about better utilizing your resources. So you're talking about much larger input. So you're talking about much more food available to people. But you're also addressing some of those distribution challenges. So when you think that now we ship live animals, it's insane, to China and Australia ships live animals to the Middle East, what if you could what if china a very food insecure place and we saw during covid how many countries became food insecure so that food system being very fragile and um, not very sturdy and very long imagine if china doesn't have to import pigs from the us and they can make their food in a lab and get all the protein that they need and want for a growing middle class so it's that growing middle class of India and China that's really driving up the need, the desire for more meat. 
which is putting out all those emissions, which is cutting down all those trees, which is utilizing all those resources. It's just unsustainable. But what if you could just make that meat that you want right there in China or in India or in Africa? Um, so it's really interesting in terms of shortening that supply chain. When you do that, you get rid of all those, not all of them, but many of the methane emissions. And you know, basically, we're just talking about disrupting the entire global food supply system. And that's why the investment opportunity is phenomenal. This episode is brought to you by InvestNet, the financial and wealth management technology company that is fully vested in connecting people's daily lives with their long-term goals. Check out their new advisor toolkit section on investmentnews.com, all about sustainable investing. There are some really interesting things. There, there seem to be so many plant-based protein startups <laughs> right now and yeah. a lot of funding going to those. You know, um, you mentioned um, mycoprotein or, or my, mycelium. That that seems to be mm -hmm. really interesting. It's I, I've seen things being positioned in a way that isn't just providing um, alternative animal proteins to the public, but also as a way for meat companies to um, supplement or enhance um, the, the meat products they have. So they actually put more plant-based protein into them um, to yeah. to make them more efficient. I, I think there is a company that is also uh, trying to pull carbon out of the air and use that as part of the process for making their alternative proteins, which is really interesting yes. too. Um, so I'm curious about your, your ETF and how much it invests in those kinds of companies. Can you kind of give us a little bit of, of a breakdown of some of the, the holdings and, you know, what's in, um, you know, some consumer products and what's in um, some of these uh, alternative protein ventures? Sure, sure. Happy to do it. So um, EatV, which is the world's only plant-based innovation ETF, it's EATV, uh, we invest up and down the supply chain in publicly traded companies that are innovating with plants and plant-derived ingredients to create sustainable foods and materials. So a lot of the companies that you mentioned, I think you're talking, referring to the company Air Protein, and you're probably referring to the Better Meat Company um, as, as a company that puts out plant-based products to be blended with meat. Um, those are startups or they're in the venture phase at some point. So they're not publicly traded. So we only um, invest in publicly traded companies. And as I said, we invest up and down the supply chain. So at any point in time, they're going to be about 40 companies in the fund. It's a global fund. And we look at those companies that are really innovating to replace. So it's not just a negative screen, but it's really companies that see that the entire global food supply system needs to shift, and they're going to partake in making that shift happen. So it can be ag tech, ag tech type companies at the very beginning of the supply chain. So we're talking about um, vertical farms and greenhouses and sustainable fertilizers. Then we move to kind of tech and innovation companies like Ginkgo Bioworks and um, other companies that are working on, like Amaris, that are working on licensing these fermented protein technologies so that more companies can use them. 
Then we move on the supply chain to ingredient companies that are working on, you know, getting rid of monocropping and having more proteins to choose from so that we have more kinds of plant-based products, which is so interesting. Then we move to flavor and texture companies like Givaudan out of Switzerland, um, working on getting those textures right and those flavors right, those smells right, so that people really like the foods. And then at the end of the line, we have those consumer packaged goods that you might recognize on the shelf in foods and in materials, because ultimately we want sustainable supply chains, not just food supply chains, but also material supply chains. Just kind of think about leather and a tannery and and what kind of environmental disaster that is. So we also have about 20% of the fund that's in materials, which kind of acts just as a natural hedge anyway, which is cool. Um, yeah, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to imply that um, th- that your, your ETF would invest in non-publicly listed equities. Um, I'm just kind of curious about some of the different um, the different technologies that it was exposed to. Um, but looking at some of the top holdings, I saw one of them was, was Crocs, the, the footwear company, which is not something that I would think of, um, if I were buying a vegan ETF necessarily, it wouldn't be the first thing that came to mind. Um, so I guess I'm just kind of curious about that. You know, why, why a company like Crocs? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be a materials company because they've committed to not using animal leather. And so 100% of their shoes, that's what they're doing. And so we see them as a very innovative and forward-looking. Ultimately, that's what we're looking for, these companies that are um, seeing the world through a different lens. You didn't mention this company, but I will. I believe it's our holding number 11. Although we're actively managed, so this can change. We don't track an index. We felt that was important given the dynamic nature of um, this sector and our expertise in it. I can talk about that if you want to know about that, but both my fund manager and I are longtime experts in this space. Anyways, number 11 on the Eat V chart, so to speak, is AB InBev. And you think, well, why would a beer company be there? I'm sure, I guess, beer's vegan, but, um, you know, we're not a vegan fund, by the way. You know, we're plant-based innovation. We're really looking at... Um, shifting the global food supply system to be more sustainable. Anyway, um, AB InBev is the largest fermenter in the world. And so they're doing two things that are really exciting and innovative, that they have you know, their kind of budgets and their kind of expertise. And they're working with startups like Perfect Day and the Every Company to help them scale. And they're sort of renting out, loaning out their large vats to ferment so that they can ferment at a scale that they currently can't ferment in their own facilities. So it's it's really exciting to see a company like that work with these startups. And then at the same time, they're upcycling their barley. So after they use it for beer, rather than give it as animal feed and just kind of keep that old system going, they're upcycling it to make barley milk. So, you know, we really look for this kind of forward thinking company. Okay. And, and you recently had some, some news about the ETF too, that it was, um, I believe the first to be certified by a third party to be net zero without the use of offsets. Is that, that's the gist of it? Yeah. Yeah. It's really exciting. So we're the first ETF ever certified by Ethos ESG. So there, we've all Googled and we didn't find anybody else who was carbon neutral, but maybe we've missed it. Or So so all we can say is the universe of ESG, our third party um, certifier, 
We're the first ETF to be carbon neutral without buying offsets. And we do that through emissions avoidance because we are replacing and just skipping that very expensive middle middle animal. Uh, we're just not creating the emissions. So we don't need to buy the offsets. So in fact, what's really cool, if you go to our website, eatvetf.com, you'll see right on top, there's this cool graphic that shows our global warming temperature potential is 1.18 degrees Celsius. If you recall from the Paris Accords, they're really targeting 2.0. They really want everyone to be 1.5 degrees Celsius, but sort of accept 2.0. We're 1.18. Now, to give you a benchmark, the S&P 500 index, probably the most common uh, investment benchmark there is, is 3.2 degrees Celsius. And I imagine that that's what most people have in their portfolios. So, you know, the planet doesn't function at 3.2 degrees Celsius. So that's where we're headed if we don't shift our investing style and approach and then also what we invest in, which is, you know, why we're here. So I want to end this with with another thought. And that's, you know, let's say that I'm someone who isn't overly concerned about global warming, isn't concerned about animal welfare any of those things. I just want alpha. And I'm I'm wondering what your argument is to them, particularly at a time when there are a couple of industries, um, you know, the oil and gas uh, predominantly that, that are doing really well. Um, what do you what do you tell them? Well, you know, you can't short the planet. <laughs> so yeah, it's a it's a sh- short game to you know be in oil and gas right now, but it's it's a long term investment against yourself, your kids, and the planet. So um, I would say it's risky business, um, and that there's smarter alpha taking a bit of a longer term view and getting in the secular trend early. And like I said, you know, if you were in semiconductors, you know before everybody else was, you're probably pretty happy. If you invested in the car before everybody else did, you're probably pretty happy. If you got into the iPhone before everybody else did, you're probably pretty happy. So, you know, I would take that um, early investment in a secular trend perspective rather than the alpha for today, because I think that'll come back to bite you. Just one more statistic, because I think it's relevant here. According to the United Nations, the top three reasons for the next pandemic not the one we're in now, but the next one, all related to the intensification of animal factories and eating meat. So, you know, you can't get alpha on a dead planet. <laughs> Pandemics are bad for that, as we know, because we're living through that. So I would say take the long, long view. There's something that I'd love to elaborate on here. You know, sometimes when I have these conversations, people say like, oh, you know, well, like, get out of my food. <laughs> and, you know, they feel that somehow they're being judged or like this is meant to make them uncomfortable. And I would say, you know, every little bit helps. So we, like I said earlier, you know, we all grew up on meat, so that makes total sense, but it just doesn't serve us anymore. So no one's going to go from black to white in a day, but if you just cut out that burger 
once a week and you switch to plant-based. And then maybe you work up and you're like, okay, every Tuesday and Thursday at lunch, just start small. Cause that's all, you know, that's all anyone can do. It's not meant to be um, pointing fingers or making anyone feel uncomfortable. Just, you know, the more you start thinking about it and the more you kind of make that diet better for yourself, that's actually gonna be a diet that's better for the planet as well. And, um, you know, you're not the only one who thinks that way. There's the Bloomberg study that says, you know, if only 10% of our meals change. So if you think we have three meals a day, seven days a week, so 21 meals, if only two out of those 21 meals changed, that would be $166 billion. We're currently at $39 billion for the sector. So Bloomberg anticipates that by 2032, or 2033, you know, right around there, the sector is going to be worth 166 billion from where it is today. The Boston Consulting Group says that by 2035, the sector is going to be worth 290 billion. As people just start to make these minor shifts, no one expects that people are shifting overnight. Okay. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really nice speaking with you. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining the podcast and thanks to our guest, Elizabeth Alfano. I want to thank our sponsor again, InvestNet. And thank you everyone for listening. If you want to keep up with the latest ESG news, please visit us at ESGClarity.com and subscribe to get newsletters sent right to your inbox. Join us again soon for more insight and analysis on the next episode of ESG Out Loud US.